Good morning, friends. Uh, today's message is titled, Did God Really Say? And it's really the fourth part in a sermon series that we've been doing out at Praise and Worship here in Branson. Uh, Pastor Mark has done the first three, and I'm doing part four. And as Mark has told us in the past few weeks, the Bible makes no sense at all unless we understand the first verses, you know, in the beginning, God created. And indeed, if we don't understand the first few chapters of Genesis, uh, we will never know the answer to very, some very crucial questions like where did we come from? How did we get from where we started to where we are today? Now, the way that question is worded suggests that somewhere along the line, a massive change has occurred in the universe. Genesis 1 tells us that when God finished with creation, he declared it very good. On that day, there was no crime or poverty, no sickness or death. There was no broken homes or latchkey kids, no abusive husbands or drug pushers or murderers or child molesters. What God created was pure, perfect, and pristine. The whole earth was a place of peace and tranquility. In short, the world as it came from the hand of God was, well, paradise. Now, obviously, something has gone wrong with that same world because all those things that were not there then are found in abundance today. I mean, now the roses have thorns and we have made bombs powerful enough to kill 10 or 20 million people at a time. So what happened to the paradise God created? Well, friends, the Bible answers that question with the little three-letter word, S-I-N, sin. Sin has happened to the world and nothing has been right or worked ever since. And yet the Bible does not tell us everything we might like to know about sin. For example, we are not clearly told where sin came from in the beginning. I mean, the serpent suddenly shows up in Genesis 3 with no introduction at all. He's simply there in the garden going about his diabolical work. So as we approach our text, it's useful to keep a couple of things in mind. First of all, this is history. It's not myth or legend or saga or poetry. This, there really was a serpent that really could talk. There really was a woman named Eve who really ate the fruit and gave some to Adam who also ate. And that is the true account of the first temptation and the first human sin. Second, this story also teaches us an important truth about how the devil tempts us today. Now, through these events that took place thousands of years ago, they have an amazing relevance to 21st century. We ought to study this story of the first temptation in the same way that you know, generals study their enemy. Before committing his force to a battle, a good leader studies his opponent carefully. I mean, where does he like to attack? How? When? How often? Under what conditions? See, if you go into battle armed with that information, your chances of victory are much stronger. So at this point, we're going to take a careful look at the story of the first temptation and watch as four stages unfold before us one by one. <clears throat> Here's stage number one. It is the, appro the approach is subtle and unexpected. Genesis 3.1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Now, there are some things we know and some things we don't know about this story. We know that the serpent is the devil. We can read about that in Romans 12, 9, or Revelation 12.9. But where did the serpent come from? How did the devil gain entry into paradise? What did the serpent look like? Did he look like a snake or some other form? Some people have actually suggested he was kind of what we might know today as a dinosaur. I mean, how could a serpent talk? And while we're on the subject, does that mean that all the animals could talk before the fall? Well, the answer to all of those questions is, I don't know. 
The Bible simply doesn't give us enough information to answer those questions. And evidently they don't matter, or God would have told us. But I think it's clear from what follows that Eve had no idea what was about to happen. Now, why would she? I mean, she's quite literally in paradise. It's not as if she got up that day and thought to herself, you know, I better have my quiet time today because a talking serpent is going to tempt me to sin. And if I give in, I'm going to bring heartache and misery and sadness and despair and, you know, every form of evil to billions of people for thousands of years to come. No, it wasn't like that at all. She was not expecting to encounter a talking serpent or to be tempted to commit the first sin. She wasn't looking for the serpent, but the serpent was certainly looking for her. I kind of picture her walking along the banks of one of the rivers that ran through the Garden of Eden. Sunny day, she's enjoying the breeze blowing through her hair, the soft feel of fresh grass under her feet. Flowers in full bloom, she can hear the birds calling to each other. It's the sort of day that we all dream about. It's a perfect day, well, you know where, in paradise. Then she spots the serpent. I mean, she doesn't recoil in fear. I mean, why should she? I mean, what sort of fear in paradise? The creature before is stunningly beautiful. When he speaks, his voice is captivating. The serpent was truly cunning in his approach. But understand, friends, temptation generally comes when we least expect it. After all, if temptation gave us a warning call, we'd be much better prepared. And the fact that the serpent shows up in paradise leads me to this suggestion. When everything is going well in your life, beware, you're a prime candidate for a satanic attack. See, our instincts, our instincts tell us that temptation tends to come when we are down on our luck. and Sometimes it does happen that way. But we're just as likely to be tempted when our bills are paid, our job is going well, our boss likes us, our spouse loves us, our kids are reasonably well behaved, the folks at church are glad to see us, and the doctor says we are in good health. But when everything is going well, let me suggest something. Buckle up. You're likely to be attacked because when the good times roll, our guard is often down, and we're prime candidates for the devil's fiery darts. Here's stage number two. <clears throat> the strategy involved conversation and controversy. Going on in Genesis 3, the serpent said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. See, the first, the Satan, Satan's first move here is brilliant. He challenges Eve to a game of Bible trivia. What happens next here is a, a three-part conversation in which the serpent speaks, Eve responds, and the serpent speaks again. And I don't know, I, I don't know if the, it, the whole exchange might have been over in less than a minute. But the servant's Bible trivia question is this. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? That's a pretty clever question. After all, Eve wasn't present when God spoke those words to Adam. She had to rely on her husband's explanation. The question itself turns on that word, really. Now, one translation even begins with that word, really. Did God really say? See, the question boils down to this. How well does Eve know the word of God. And as we shall see, she knows it well, but not well enough, because she has a general idea of what God says, but it's kind of hazy on the details, so the serpent is going to pounce on her lack of specific knowledge. And in her response, Eve makes several mistakes. One, she downplays the permission. God said they could eat from any tree of the garden. That's in back in Genesis 2. 
Eve lessens the impact of God's permission from any tree to the trees. Kind of a subtle but important shift in emphasis. And second, she added to the prohibition. God had forbidden them to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, but Eve added the phrase, and you must also not touch it. And third, she downplayed the judgment of disobedience. Now, God said, you will surely die, while Eve says, you will die. And again, this is kind of a subtle difference, but it's a difference nonetheless. Eve had to get her information from Adam, which means that either Adam incorrectly relayed what God had said, or Eve misunderstood it, or perhaps she changed it on her own. Now, Eve's paraphrase of God's word is not especially objectionable. To use a common term, she's kind of in the neighborhood of truth. She's quoting God's word, sort of. And where did this not touching the tree come from? I don't know, maybe Adam suggested it was a logical way to keep her out of trouble. If so, he was simply being a wise husband and showing proper care for his wife. But if Adam said, God said, don't touch the tree, then Adam was adding to God's word as well. And if Eve interpreted it that way, she too was adding to God's word. Now, either way, the net effect is to make God sound more restrictive than he really is. But there's a greater point that must not be missed here. It's this. If you are going to talk to the devil, make sure you quote God's word accurately. Now, as we'll see, he knows what God really said. When we're tempted, we will never be delivered by a general knowledge of the word. It won't help us to sort of know the truth. We must know and stand upon what God has actually said. So why did Eve get into trouble? Let me give you two reasons. Number one, she did not know the truth of the word of God. And second, she shouldn't have been discussing God's word with the serpent in the first place. She should have asked Adam to help her in this situation instead of going alone. And those who think they're an equal match for the devil will soon find out you're sadly mistaken. So we learn from this that when you're tempted, don't stop to talk it over. You know, when Potiphar's wife is pulling you down into the bed, you don't stop to pray with her. Run for your life. Leave your jacket. Run for safety. Don't negotiate with the devil. And don't talk it over with his representatives. And remember, his representative could be your best friend or a family member or a co-worker, someone else you've known very well. I think the devil sometimes uses those we love in order to lead us astray. Your best defense against temptation will always be an accurate knowledge of the word. Know it. Read it. Study it. Memorize it. Apply it. Quote it when the devil comes knocking. Now here's stage three. <clears throat> the conversation leads to doubt and desire going on in Genesis 3. You will surely not die the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the, women saw, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and was pleasing to the eye and was desirable for getting wisdom, I'm going to stop there because at this point, the serpent openly denies what God has said. In the Hebrew, the expression is very strong. Literally, it reads, reads not you shall surely die. The serpent took the very phrase God used and put the word not in front of it, which means, by the way, that in this instance, the devil knew the word of God better than Eve did. That's why you'd better know your Bible before you start arguing with him. He's not only smarter than you, he knows the word through and through. He just doesn't believe it. See, the first doctrine that is denied by the devil is the doctrine of God's judgment. 
God said, you will certainly die. Satan said, you will not certainly die. Now, why did he deny this doctrine and not something like the existence of God or the deity of Christ or Christ's resurrection? Well, the answer is pretty simple. If you are convinced that you can get away with sin, sooner or later, you're going to do it. If you think no one is going to know, that no one will ever notice or call you into account for your actions, you'll eventually give in. I mean, why not commit adultery or steal or kill or sleep around if you think you can get away with it? If there are no consequences for sin, friends, there's no reason not to indulge your wildest desires. And then the serpent questions God's goodness. He implies that God is holding back something from Eve that would make her happy. You'll be like God. What an incentive. I mean, why not? Who wouldn't want to be like God? The serpent's words were designed to cause Eve to feel deprived and cheated. And now the downward spiral has started. I mean, Eve listened when she shouldn't have listened. She talked when she shouldn't have talked. She thought about what the devil said when she should have ignored it. And now she's about to fall right into his trap. And her response reveals how clever the devil is. And now he's got her on three different levels. The practical level. The fruit was good to eat. That's the lust of the flesh. The emotional level. It looked good. It looked beautiful to her. That's the lust of the eyes. And on the spiritual level, it would make her wise. And that's the pride of life. So the devil has got her now hook, line, and sinker. She's already gone her and she doesn't know it. Now, to be fair, I'm sure the fruit did look good. And she probably took it in her hands, felt it, even enjoyed the pleasant fragrance. But please remember, friends, when you start fondling forbidden fruit, you're already in the pit. You've committed the sin in your heart long before you take that first bite. If you don't want to get trapped... Don't stop to inspect the fruit. Don't spend time thinking about how nice it would be, how good it would feel, or how much you deserve it. And see, we play this game in so many different ways. I mean, I know God says adultery is wrong, but I really do love him or her, and God wants me to be happy. Or I know God says he hates divorce, but my marriage is in the pits. Or I know God calls me to purity, but I'm single and I'm, I'm so lonely. Or I know God says stealing is wrong, but everybody else does it. Why can't I? Well, mark it down, friends. When you start saying, I know God says, dot, 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 but, dot, 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 you are on the verge of making a terrible mistake. And there are several crucial lessons here. When we doubt God's goodness, sin won't seem so sinful. Satan wants you to feel deprived by God, and we can always justify disobedience if we try hard enough. See, the downward spiral now is almost complete. First, you talk with the devil. Second, you believe the devil. Third, you obey the devil. And fourth, you're conquered by the devil. Truly, there is nothing new under the sin, under the sun. What the serpent did to Eve, he still does because the strategy still works. And here's stage four. The result is collaboration and catastrophe. She took some of it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. The eyes of both were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now, if you look back at verse 6, notice the verbs here. Saw, took, gave, ate. Evidently, she does not hesitate, and neither does Adam. Eve has now joined the serpent's team, and by giving the fruit to her husband, she is doing the serpent's dirty work and is dragging her husband down with her. But that's not what happens when we yield to but that's what happens when we yield to temptation. We never fall alone. 
Others are always hurt by our rebellion and disobedience. We stand together, we fall together, and in the end we suffer together. But notice how ordinary that very first sin is. It's just a bite of fruit. There's nothing special about that. It's no big deal. The first sin was not murder or some terrible sexual sin. No, it's something very ordinary, something we've all done. Just a bite of fruit. And I can imagine that when she ate it, Eve said to herself, you know, this is really good. And perhaps she said to Adam, honey, have a bite. I touched it. Nothing happened to me. This is the best fruit I've ever had. And by the way, where was Adam when all this was going on? Now, the text says he was with her. Now, that sounds like he was standing right by her side while she was talking to the snake. I don't know, maybe he was grinning to himself and enjoying this kind of intellectual sparring that was taking place between the serpent and his wife. Maybe he thought it was just some cute parlor game. But friends, if Adam had been a true spiritual leader, he would have taken a hoe and hacked off the serpent's head. I mean, the world would have been a better place if he had taken leadership. Now, 1 Timothy 2.14 draws an important conclusion from this verse. It says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve... And Adam was not the one deceived, it was the woman who was deceived and fell into sin. So Eve was tricked by the devil. Perhaps he came to her because he knew he could appeal to her emotions. But see, Adam was not deceived. He heard the original command from God. He knew it was wrong to eat the fruit. He wasn't tricked at all, but as the head of the family and as the head of the entire human race, he was held morally culpable for that first sin. She sinned first, but Adam is to blame. Let me read to you Romans five twelve to fourteen. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and through de- and death through sin, death comes uh, to all men, because all sinned. For before the law was given, uh, sin was in the world. But sin is not taken into account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even those who did not sin by breaking command, as did Adam, who was the pattern of the one to come. Yes, friends, Adam should have known better and exercised leadership to protect his, his wife, and he should have killed a snake when he had the chance, but he didn't, and the rest is history. So I'm just speaking to the men here to, right now. You need to learn this lesson. When you fail to exercise spiritual leadership, your wife and your children will always pay the price. See, Eve never dreamed what would happen next. She truly thought she'd gain wisdom, but her eyes... And Adam's eyes were opened, and suddenly they knew they were naked. See, innocence was gone forever, and the full impact of their disobedience began to hit home. Now they were ashamed to see each other naked, so they made this pitiful covering of fig leaves. But friends, sinners can never adequately cover up their own sin. The fig leaves keep falling off, and you can never replace them fast enough. Now, how did Adam and Eve end up like this? It was a series of little steps in the wrong direction. She shouldn't, she should have never listened. She had no business stopping to talk to that serpent. She should have known God's word accurately. She should never have spent time thinking about how wonderful the fruit looked and how much fun it would be to have a bite. She never, she should never have given the fruit to her husband and he should have intervened to protect her. But all those small steps add up to one huge catastrophe that still haunts the world today. And from the standpoint of thousands of years later, we see Satan's strategy clearly. He came to Eve with an innocent question. 
Little by little, he led her to the place where she was willing to do what she previously never would have dreamed of doing. He even co-opted her onto his team so she was doing his work for him. And friends, the devil uses the same strategy today because it still works. I mean, notice his ultimate lie. He said, God knows you will know. He took a truth and he twisted it violently. When they sinned, their eyes were open and they truly did know, only they now knew evil on a personal basis. The wisdom they thought could never be found through rebellion, the enlightenment they dreamed of turned out to be a deep moral darkness. It is no wonder they were ashamed. See, Satan promised liberation through rebellion. What they got was slavery, sin, shame, and death. So let's learn one overarching truth from these words this morning. Every temptation is a lie wrapped in a promise of freedom. That's because Satan is the father of lies. He lies constantly. He lies because it's his nature to lie. He's the first and greatest deceiver. And I tell you, all of Satan's apples have worms. What really happened that day in the garden? Well, theologians call it the fall. That meant that Adam and Eve fell from the state of innocence into a state of sin, shame, slavery, and death. And what they did has been passed down through all generations as well, so that all of us inherit a nature that causes us to rebel against God. We're conceived in sin. We're born in sin. We just plain simple are sin. That day in Eden, man declared his independence from God. And as a result, all of us are born with a clenched fist, daring God to tell us what to do. See, human nature is now thoroughly corrupt. We're born that way, we live that way, and we're going to die that way. Sin is now the environment in which we live, and every relationship is corrupted because sin always separates us from others and from God. Now, friends, everything in this sermon so far has been bad news. But it's also true news because this passage tells the truth about why humanity is so messed up today. I mean, there is a direct connection between what happened in the garden that day and the pain and the sorrow and the sadness and the despair and the hatred and the rampant evil we see around us and the sin we see inside of us. We are the way we are because of what Adam and Eve did. Now, I want to sum up the rest of the Bible. Mark could take forever to preach this, but I'm going to sum it up in just one paragraph this way. After the fall, God moved to reestablish a relationship with fallen men and women. Thousands of years later, he made the ultimate move when his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, came to this earth to die for us. The first sin came from tasting forbidden fruit. The evil of that day would not be overcome until Jesus tasted death for all of us on the cross. And it took the bloody death of his son, the son of God, to reverse the impact of what happened in Eden. You see, friends, the good news is that through Jesus... All of our sins can now be forgiven. Apart from the grace of God, we can commit all sorts of evil. But through the cross of Christ, even our worst sins can be forgiven. And that way out, well, Mark is going to pick that up next week in Genesis 3.15. Until next time, see the vision, live the mission, feel the passion.